Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me as always is a man that sings the songs that make John Mayer's panties drop. He is the captain. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening, and thanks for telling a friend. Today we are drinking Fat Tire Belgian White Ale by New Belgium Brewing Company Garage Grade 3 and 3 quarter bottle caps out of 5. Fat Tire Belgian White Ale is a wit beer. You know, Captain, we've been looking to pick something that's a little more readily available, so many of the beers on True Crime Garage are only available in certain locales. I'm not saying that you can get this one everywhere, but this is a great beer to try, and you should be able to find it with just a little beer sleuthing. Yeah, it's uh, one of my favorite go-to beers. 5.2% ABV, and you can certainly taste the hints of orange and coriander. And this great beer was brought to us by these fine folks right here. First up, we have Alessandra in the Bronx. And her name was Alessandra. Next, we have Brandy in Auburn, California. And heading back to the East Coast, we say thank you to Jesse and Nikki in Stoughton, Massachusetts. And from the Sunshine State, we have Anne from Palm Harbor, Florida. And we want to send a shout out to Christopher from Marysville, California. Captain Christopher had a lot of nice things to say. Lots of compliments about the old garage music. Well, don't thank me. Thank the alcohol. And last but not least, we want to give a shout out to Bryce in Pullman, Washington. So thank you to everybody for filling up the fridge for this week's show. If you want to help us out with next week's show, go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate button. We have a few We Like Your Jib shirts left. If you want to check those out, go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the store page. All right, Captain, that's enough of the business. Everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. Wednesday, January 4th, 1984, Aurora, Colorado. In the middle of the night, someone managed to enter the home of James and Kimberly Hobbins' child, a young married couple. They were both asleep when a homicidal maniac crept into their bedroom. The intruder is dressed in dark clothing. There are no lights on in their bedroom and no light coming from the hallway. 
As he entered the room, he could feel his pulse start to speed up. The adrenaline in him escalating. It was almost as if he could feel the blood flowing from his chest to his arms and legs and then down to his feet and hands. His breathing became louder with each step as he slowly stepped one foot at a time until he was at the side of James and Kimberly's bed. He has been thinking about this for a long time and now the time has finally come. He was prepared and ready for what was about to happen, but the married couple sleeping in the bed were not. The intruder looked down at the sleeping man, James's head resting on a pillow. The intruder, with his weapon heavy in his right hand, slowly raised the weapon high above his head, and as fast as he could, with as much might as he could muster, he brought his fist down, smashing the weapon into the center of James's skull. James is not moving, but the force of the object hitting the man created an earthquake effect on the bed, and the tremors awaken Kimberly. As she lifts her head from her slumber, she opens her eyes. The intruder bends over, placing one hand on the bed to sturdy himself, and again he lifts the heavy weapon high above his head, and as fast as he could, before Kimberly could turn and look at him, he smashes in her head with some kind of heavy object knocking her unconscious. Both James and Kimberly were hit multiple times before the intruder left their home. Somehow, they both survived. James and Kimberly suffered terrible head injuries due to this attack. Neither could offer much of an explanation of who could have done this to them or why. But what we do know is, sometime in the middle of the night on January 4th, 1984, the terror had just begun. In the fall of 1983, 50-year-old Patricia Smith from Nebraska, she moved to Green Mountain Village Townhomes located in Lakewood, Colorado. She was helping out her daughter. Patricia's daughter, Sherry Litton, was only 29 years old. Sherry was recently divorced and had moved with her two children from rural Oshkosh, Nebraska to Lakewood as well. Patricia was a loving mother and grandmother uh, and moving in with them to help them out, to help them adjust from the divorce and being relocated over three hours away to Lakewood. Patricia, even though she was moving in with her daughter, she was happily married. Her husband, Oliver, had a government job in the state of Nebraska and would have to remain there. Oliver would often make the long drive to visit his wife daughter, and grandkids on most of the weekends. Patricia, her daughter Sherry, and the grandkids, this is six-year-old Amber and four-year-old Joe, they rented a townhome at 12610 West Bayard Avenue in Lakewood. Lakewood is just a short drive about eight miles southwest of Denver, Colorado. And Sherry considered her mother, Patricia, to be her best friend. Yeah, Patricia was doing her best to brighten the lives of her family members during this, this very tough time for them. And this, to me, Captain, I think was, this wasn't going to be a short-term arrangement. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, Patricia was going to stay there as long as it took to get them settled in, but it actually sounds to me, Captain, like the plan may have been for Patricia's husband, Oliver, to eventually move out to Colorado to join the rest of the family. Right, so they could be closer to their grandkids. Yeah, this would this would be either after his contract was up with his government state job or mm -hmm. maybe upon retirement. The two had a farm. Uh, Patricia and her husband had a farm out in Nebraska, so obviously this would require selling the farm as well. But Patricia started up her own business after having moved to Lakewood, Colorado. She had a home interior design business. The family had established a daily routine for the school and work days. 
The two ladies would get the kids ready in the morning and get in Patricia's car and leave the house each morning. They would first take Amber to school for kindergarten, then take Joe to church. Uh, this is where he, he attended a daycare center that was set up at the church. Right. And then they would continue on and Patricia would drop her daughter, Sherry off at a bus station on sixth Avenue. Sherry used public transportation to get to and from her job. Patricia would continue on and go to work in the evening. When both ladies were done working for the day, Patricia would then meet Sherry at the bus station and then they would go get the kids. So pretty much the evening routine was the reverse order of the morning routine. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about Tuesday, January 10th, 1984. Yeah. Cause that evening didn't go, it didn't work out as usual. You know, Sherry, the daughter, she arrived, her bus arrived at the station, dropped her off. But her mother, who was always there waiting to pick her up, uh, she was not there on this day. Her mother and the car were nowhere in sight. Right. Sherry waited around for a bit and then started to get nervous. No matter where her mother was, Sherry still needed to get her kids to go pick up her kids. So she used the payphone and she started making phone calls. She tried to call the town home where they lived and there was no answer. After several tries to the town home, she then called a friend. The friend took her daughter from the school to the daycare. She called her cousin and her cousin picked her up at the bus station. And from there, they went to pick up the child, uh, the children from the daycare center and they drove back to their town home. Well, when they arrived at the scene, uh, in front of the house immediately, this, the scene felt strange to Sherry. Keep in mind by now it's, it's dark out and it's evening time. The first thing that Sherry noticed was her mother's car was parked in the driveway. It was parked out in front of the town home. Yeah. Now there were no outside lights on. So you know how, when there's no lights on, if there are any lights on, inside the home if there's no lights outside but there's lights inside the home you can pretty much see everything you know right away yeah well sherry could see lights changing color and flickering coming from the upstairs bedroom window yeah and most people like once it starts getting dark they turn on the outside lights right Mm -hmm. i like to keep everything dark and wear night vision goggles (laughs) i feel like it gives me the advantage well the lights that were flickering they're coming from Sherry's mother's bedroom window. So other than the odd thing of no lights, it appears that Sherry's mother, Patricia was at the home by now when you say flickering, I mean, is this like turning on and off or or no flicker? And I'm glad you asked that the the TV is on in the upstairs, one of the upstairs rooms. And so when you see the lights changing and flickering, it's just the TV. Yeah. That's always a, kind of a creepy look mm-hmm. by this time. It's about uh, a little after six fifteen PM. Uh, of course, the alarming thing here, captain is if Patricia was already at the home by this time, why had she not picked up her daughter from the bus or at the very least picked up the phone when her daughter had tried calling her several times? Yeah. Sherry and the kids got out of the car and they walked to the front door. The door was locked. Sherry started to get her keys out. The kids stepped in front of her, both wanting to be the first to get inside out of the cold Colorado winter evening. Sherry unlocked the door and Amber, her daughter, pushed past her and little Joe and ran inside. Unfortunately, little Amber was the first to find her her grandmother on the floor and an image in her own words that she said would never leave her mind. 50-year-old Patricia was lying on the floor near a sofa just about four feet from the front door. She was lying on top of a Winnie the Pooh comforter. The comforter was slightly folded so that part of it covered Patricia's head. Her hands and arms were crossed over her chest. Even to little Amber's untrained eye, it was clear that her grandmother had been killed and posed as if she were lying in a casket. Left near the front door, right where the next person to come in the home would immediately find her. Patricia's jeans were pulled down nearly to her ankles. Her boots were still on and she was wearing a sweater. 
There was a large amount of blood on Patricia's face and around her head. Someone had left a hammer lying on the floor next to her. Sherry immediately gathered the children and took them next door to the neighbor's home. The neighbor man ran back to the townhome and saw Patricia's dead body. And upon this, he returned to his home to call 911. The police were quick to respond. Uh, the family remained at the neighbor's home while the police searched the crime scene for clues. I'm guessing with a, uh, a killer on the loose and a murder scene, they may have gone to stay with the, with other family members, you know, they had, uh, in the Denver area, the homicide investigation was pretty thorough. The, they quickly determined that Patricia had been raped during the attack. There was no sign of forced entry into the home and they figured out that she had been killed between the hours of 1 p.m. and 3 p.m. However, the initial report was that she had been killed between the hours of 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. Well, and also this is 84, so a lot of people are not locking their doors, uh, especially during the day. Maybe right. maybe more people would lock their doors at night, but it was it was less likely or more likely that people would have unlocked doors back in 84 than now. So let's talk about real quick the the no sign of forced entry as you're as you're getting towards there. A um, couple scenarios. There are two scenarios to talk about here. Patricia was on her her lunch break. Okay, yeah. um, and this is what the police were able to determine that she had gone to a Wendy's uh, restaurant to pick up lunch for herself. Mm-hmm. She had returned home and she was attacked as she opened her front door. This was the police theory. Um, The problem with this police theory is there's evidence to suggest that Patricia was actually home for some time before the attack took place. Right. First of all, remember we talked about the TV being on upstairs. Her body was found near the front door on the main level of the townhome. All right. So she gets her Wendy's. She goes home. She's going out. Maybe watch a little daytime TV while she eats her lunch and then knock, knock, knock on the door. She answers the door. The attack happens there. Well, right. And and that's what I'm pointing out here. At, at the very least, she couldn't have been attacked as she was opening the door because she had to have enough time to get in the home, go upstairs, turn on the TV at the very least. Yeah. And the and if she had food and she was attacked when she's going in, wouldn't there be food everywhere? Mm hmm. Okay. And you you hint to something there very important because the family had their own theory. The family suggested that Patricia, who had grown up and recently lived in a small town before moving to the larger city of Lakewood, they said they think that the killer knocked on the door thinking Patricia was just a trusting person and probably would have not have hesitated to open the door, letting the killer in and he attacked her immediately. Uh as upon her opening the door again, right. And again, this would not be uncommon for 1984. I don't think it would be that uncommon for today. You know, you're at home during the day. Somebody knocks on your door. There's so many of these solicitors. Mm -hmm. How many people are opening up the door for just whoever, you know, I actually have a problem with both the, the initial police theory and the family's theory. Okay. And like I said, the TV being on points to me that she probably was not attacked as soon as she had opened the front door. The problem I have with when, her when she's going inside the when house. she's going first going into the home uh-huh. and, and here's why. So the police later find a receipt for the Wendy's food that she picked up upstairs. So yeah. we know she went there. This wasn't a TV that was left on from the morning time. This was a TV that was turned on unless the killer for some reason decided to take the receipt to her fast food upstairs and put it in her bedroom. The the food I believe was found up there as well. It sounds to me I don't know it sounds to me like she didn't sit down and consume much of this meal before she was interrupted. Right. Here's the thing that makes me believe that she did not answer the door. And this makes this makes the no sign of forced entry very tricky because we're saying she she may not have been attacked upon returning home. And she herself didn't open the door. 
Patricia wore a wig. Mm-hmm. The wig was found upstairs. And you know, I don't want to I don't want to receive any crappy email for this, but here's here's my guess, send, okay? Send Nick crappy emails. If here's my guess, if I wore a wig, uh somebody knocks on my door, I'm going to put on my wig before I go answer the door. Does that sound like a fair statement? I thought you did wear a wig. <laughs> you should see these these locks, man. <laughs> this is my real hair. Not my real color, Madison Reed, thank you. No, but um, that's just a guess. I'm just guessing there. Maybe that's not true 100% of the time, all of the time. But I'm going I'm going off the assumption that if I were wearing a wig, somebody knocks on the door, I would probably put the wig on before going downstairs to open up the door. All right, so your theory is that she gets food. She goes inside the house. She goes upstairs to watch TV while she's going to eat her lunch. Mm-hmm. And the intruder comes in. The door's unlocked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes the most sense to me. Yeah, yeah, and it, well, and and like I said, it's just I, the the idea that sometimes when when break ins happen and they go, there's no force, no sign of force entry. Sometimes people just don't lock the door. It happens. Well, and I also want to talk about real quick, Captain, why the um. Well, real quick though. Sorry, but to me, this points as an individual. If she didn't have if she didn't consume much of her meal, mm-hmm. that this is not just some random attack where he just picked this house for no reason, or he was just riding by on his bike and sees this lady in the window watching TV. I think this was probably somebody that saw her getting the food, um, you know, fancied her on some level and then followed her back to her place mm-hmm. and probably st- you know, studied the scene a little bit, just kind of figure out is she by herself? Are there other people in the house? Right. And, and, and I think they kind of got the feeling the attacker had this, um, the feeling that, no, it's just her, you know, and then he just went in. Well, the other thing too, is if you're watching from the outside, depending on how light it was out that day, um, you may, you may be able to observe the town home and see that from the windows, even if the shades are closed, that there's likely no lights on in the home. Right. And if she returns home and you're watching her, as you said, and you see, boom, a light turn on as soon as she walks in the front door, boom, a light turn on in the upstairs bedroom, you can, ass- you might, one might assume she's the only person in the home, that right. there was nobody there before she returned. The other evidence, Captain, the autopsy showed that the cause of death was several very hard and violent hits to her head. Uh Um, This, of course, consistent with the hammer that was found lying next to her as the most likely murder weapon. Whoever killed the woman had removed two diamond rings from her fingers and removed a gold necklace that was around her neck. Nothing else was stolen from the home. In fact, the killer didn't even check the rest of the home. This is according to the police to see if there were other valuables that he could take evidence of a sexual assault was collected from the body. One thing that her daughter Sherry would point out in a later interview was that there were no defensive wounds on Patricia's hands and arms. This suggesting that she was knocked out by one or more blows to the head before the sexual assault took place. Let's get back to the case of the Aurora hammer slayer after this quick beer break. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. 
With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners, get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors, no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer. Thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like calorie smart protein plus and keto. Factors fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we're back. Cheers, mates. Cheers, Captain. Stay safe out there. It's a 
it's all snowy where we're at so hopefully it's uh warmer wherever you are mm-hmm. all right so in our timeline of the hammer slayer we have the first attack and that is of the couple yeah so that is james and kimberly hobbins child that were attacked in the middle of the night inside their home on january 4th 1984 but they survived yes and then we have the second attack which is going to be of patricia smith and she, unfortunately, did not survive. Correct. Later that same day, January 10th, by now it's evening time. The attack and murder of Patricia Smith took place in Lakewood. Now, I know this is the same day, but this next part of the story is going to take us back to Aurora, Colorado. Remember from the first trailer, the first attack took place in the middle of the night in Aurora. So Aurora is just about 15 miles from Lakewood give or take, depending on how far west in Lakewood you are and how far east you would be in Aurora. I don't have an address for Donna Dixon, so we will just have to use the 15-mile distance as something to keep in mind. In Aurora, 28-year-old flight attendant Donna Dixon, who worked for Frontier Airlines, uh, she is driving home. She pulled into her driveway and parked her car in her garage. As she got out of her car, she was attacked. She was struck in the head. Something very hard smashed into her left temple. She dropped to the ground. Her attacker pulled and stripped her clothes off of her. Donna was sexually assaulted on the concrete garage floor. After the attacker fled the scene... Donna Dixon was left bloodied, very badly beaten, and unconscious. Her attacker had left her there to bleed out or to succumb to her head injuries and die there on the cold concrete floor. Eventually, Donna and the bloody scene were discovered. A call was placed for an ambulance to transport her to the nearest hospital. Mm -hmm. Donna was in a coma, uh, but somehow she survived the brutal assault. But because of the severity of her injuries, Donna spent weeks relearning how to talk, which was important here, Captain, because the police were hoping that she could tell them who had attacked her. Right. Uh, Later, when Donna Dixon would describe the attack, she says that the attacker bashed in her head with a sledgehammer and beat her head against the wheel well. Another curious thing, though, is that that same article, that same news article, where the crime reporter had asked Donna to describe the attack and give her insights into the case, there's a troubling phrase in there where it is stated Donna's attacker or attackers had used a sledgehammer to attack her. And why is that a troubling phrase? Well, I, it's not so much that that in particular is super troubling. It's that a lot of people over the years have looked at the, you know, now we've discussed three different attacks. Three separate attacks. And a lot of people have looked through the details of those attacks to determine if, in fact, they are all connected. Right. If they were all committed by the same perpetrator. So some people have pointed out through the years that, well, while a hammer, what what we would believe to be a traditional hammer, was left next to the body of Patricia Smith. And then we have this next account, the third attack, where uh, we have the victim describing a sledgehammer. And I think there's a couple things there to consider. First of all, if a traditional hammer was used to kill Patricia Smith and was left at the scene, right? well, then the attacker just hours later would, would not have that same weapon to use on his next victim. Mm-hmm. Now, where she says the word sledgehammer, I don't think we're looking at or thinking about the same thing that you and I would consider a traditional sledgehammer with the long handle. I'm thinking that we're probably talking about something that is just... Um, right, it's still a short hammer. You correct. Can, you can have a short hammer, sledgehammer. I mean, I watched Property Brothers before. <laughs> and but here's one thing that I want to point out to the listeners when when thinking about if these attacks are connected and if in fact the details of these different uh, attacks could lead one to believe that or take you away from believing that. With Donna Dixon in that news article. Uh, there, where she gives this account years later of how the attack went down. 
she is giving you information that was provided to her by the police. Okay. Where she says that she was hit in the head with the sledgehammer and pulled to the, to the ground. And then her head was bashed against the wheel. Well, this information didn't come from her witnessing this attack. She actually had no memory of the attack at all. Um, other than getting out of her car, basically for Donna Dixon, she got out of her car and then she woke up many days later in the hospital. Right. And that's as far as she remembers. And, and I know me, and I'm sure a lot of people out there are the same way that would have happened to me. The first thing I'm asking the police is one, who did this? Why did they do this? And describe the attack to me as the evidence points out to you. Cause I want to know what happened to me. Right. It's probably a crazy fan that you made mad. <laughs> that's well, probably what would happen. Well, and I'm sure that she's able to give this account because the police are relaying what they can see from evidence to, to, to tell her, you know, Hey, you were attacked immediately. As soon as you got out of your car, right? You were attacked in your garage. And we can tell by blood that you left on the wheel. Well, that your head struck that wheel. Well, at least once, if not multiple times. Well, I mean, I guess the bright side of this is that she does not remember the attack. And that she doesn't have those memories that would haunt her. Right. Right. And it was a long recovery, but she would make a full recovery and go on to live a, a normal life, not affected by those injuries many years later. And one question that has come up time and time again regarding this case, regarding the Hammer Slayer case, is people have always been curious why the police would move the reported time of death regarding Patricia Smith. Remember early on, it was reported that she was killed sometime between three and 5 PM, but then later reported that she was actually killed between one and 3 PM. Now the police, the reason why this remains a question, captain is the police offer no information or no insight as to why they changed that time frame. Mm -hmm. I think here, if we look at the events of that day, and if we look into the lives of these of the victims involved that we can probably piece together why they made that change, make some inferences here. And what I think I would point out is what did, what do we know about Patricia Smith? Well, we know that she is living at that town home with the sole purpose of helping her daughter and her grandkids. We talked about their daily routine during the work week. Well, their daily routine was to get up, drop, off the kids and then drop off the, her daughter at the bus station for her to go off to work. So what inference can we make from that is that their work day, Patricia Smith's work day and her daughter, Sherry's work day is based more off of the kids schedule, what time they need to arrive to school and what time they need to be picked up after school. Yeah. So we know that her body was discovered around six fifteen PM that night. My guess is that 3 p.m., around 3 p.m., was the first time that she was known to be missing. She was not where she was supposed to be, meaning she had not picked up her daughter. She wasn't waiting at the bus station. Phone calls are made to the townhome where we know she's ultimately found dead later. So one can assume that they came up with the idea of 3 to 5 being that she was unaccounted for starting at 3 p.m., and she's found by 6 p.m. dead. And we know that it, we had to have some time for the attack to actually occur and for the attacker to flee the scene. So you come up with that three to five marker, right? Yeah, I think I think it makes more sense to take a look at her receipt, see if there's a time on it. You know, that would be the starting point <clears throat> one in it. Well, and I think that's where you are exactly right, my friend, because now... Later, they're going to tell you that the attack probably most likely occurred between the hours of 1 p.m. and 3 p.m. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, why would that move? We have to, again, look at the victim and what that person was doing that day. And like you said, they found a receipt. Did, they, it, ha did it have a timestamp on it? It would have had a timestamp on it, yes. Th this information was not released to the public. You mean um, the, the time was not released Correct. Timestamp. But yeah. what we can, the inference we can make from what police did release, stating that we believe she returned home on her lunch break, mm -hmm. meaning that there, that timestamp is going to point them more towards a traditional lunch hour time. Mm -hmm. um, and then we know 
that she would have had to have been killed or most likely would have had to have been killed before 3 p.m. because that's when she is now unaccounted for. So if you take a look at that receipt, as you had pointed out, and the receipt says 1230, 1245, 1250, and we know that she's not accounted for starting at 3 p.m., then it's looking like this attack occurred sometime between the hours of 1 to 3. My guess is that they had not discovered that receipt upon releasing that initial information. Yeah, possibly. And then, what, like you said, depending on what that timestamp is, it, let's say it is uh, 1230. Then mm-hmm. she has this travel time to get back to her house. And, and again, with the reports, it's stating that, well, she didn't consume much of this food. So unless she was interrupted with a phone call, which we'd have phone records of that, um, if there wasn't something... Uh, hindering her or being a hindrance. That's not even the right word. Yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> <laughs> let's go with that word. But f- for whatever reason, she has her food and she didn't, she didn't eat all the food. You know, so you would assume that, that the attack happened pretty quickly once she returned home. Some other things, though, here, Captain, is that they after these attacks they started rounding up um construction workers and home builders in the area and i mean the area of aurora and lakewood right apparently both of these neighborhoods um in both of these cities were i mean it was a housing boom for both of these cities during this time period of of late 83 early 84 so there's a lot of homes being built and a lot of houses going up everywhere yeah and their thought was the weapon is commonly used tool and construction. Yes. But but the tough thing about this tool is it's not, this is also a household object. You know, most houses have uh, a hammer. And then the question becomes, is this, is this person showing up without a hammer and finding one at the scene? Or is he bringing a hammer Mm -hmm. with him? Well, that's, you bring up an interesting point because first off, in the Patricia Smith murder, the hammer was left, meaning that when they state that the hammer was left, that means that they've shown it to the people, the remaining people that lived at that home and said, was this hammer here before this event happened? And to the, you know, the accounts they're getting from these, these people, the family members of Patricia Smith are, no, that's not, that was not in this house prior to this attack. Then in the situation with Donna Dixon, I don't think that we have a hammer that was left or a sledgehammer that was left at the scene. There's no report of that. Uh-huh. Um, one thing I wondered, though, with them rounding up all of the construction workers and the home builders, and this might sound this might sound silly, but sometimes it's these silly little things that can solve a case or at least give you a decent lead. All right, let's hear your little silly idea. Okay, so we know that at least one hammer was left at a crime scene on January 10th. Yeah. I would be curious to know if there were any, if they if they spent time looking at hammer purchases on the 11th or the 10th or the 12th or the 13th. Mm-hmm. And the only reason why I'm pointing that out is obviously, like you had said, a common tool used by construction workers and, and home builders is, in fact, a hammer. Um, or, you know, anybody in that is similar trade. Right. But my thing is if the perpetrator at least left one hammer at a crime scene, is there a chance he needs to replace that? I, I mean, here's what I'm getting at. If you have a, you have an area like Lakewood or Aurora and there's these attacks going on and it's fairly well known that the weapon used in the murder was a hammer that was left there. And then two days later, you and I are at a site. We're working together in some form of, uh, you know, we're craftsmen or we're we're builders or something of that nature. Yeah, I'd and be the foreman. Yeah, you would be the boss, and I'd say, "Hey, foreman, uh, captain," and I'd say, "Go fetch me that concrete, you mule." And and I would go. I would. I I'll fetch you the concrete, but do you have a hammer I can borrow? And you'd go, Nick. Uh, I'm tired of you showing up without your tools. All right, let me try it. Nick, I'm tired of you showing up here. You got, you got a future. You got some real skills, natural gifted, but you can't, can't show up empty-handed, my my friend. You need to show up with your tools. I'm just getting at, would it be a little uh, suspicious if, if all of a sudden one of these guys is showing up without that very common tool? Uh, yeah, but 
look, if there's, let's say there's a hundred construction sites, that probably happens every day. It might happen every day, but where I'm going is to the hardware stores and looking to see, Hey, has anybody purchased hammers in the, in the past 24, 48, 72 hours? I don't think that your idea is that silly, but I think you would want to take it one step further. If there is some kind of evidence uh, based on the autopsy that it was a different kind of hammer, not the traditional hammer, you know, that maybe you should look into, was there multiple purchases? Was there a purchase of a, uh, the traditional hammer and then one of the smaller sledgehammer? I think if you could find that because those were the same day, those purchases might have been made at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also per- it's also possible that um, whoever this nut job is going around attacking people with a hammer is, you know, let's say he's living with his mom. His father has passed away, but his father was into construction. Mm-hmm. These could be tools that, you know, that, that would be another question that was not reported. Was the hammer that was left... What, what kind of condition was this in? Was this a 10 year old hammer? Yeah. Did it look purchased recently or yeah, that's a good, that's a good insight there. Well, and the, and the reason why I wonder that is because I personally probably own, I don't know, five, six different hammers. Right. Me, I would say I own a minimum three, maybe four or five. And yeah. And there's a, you know, they all vary in age, mm-hmm. you know, and I have a couple Older hammers that I probably should throw away, but, you know, sentimental value, grand, grandfather's hammer or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, um, I I don't know. that That's one thing I'd like to know. Is this a new hammer? You know? Uh, and and then, then you're, again, they probably did this if it was a new hammer. If it was a new hammer, they probably were checking local hardware stores. Right. Uh, and, and like I said, though, I also think it would be worth checking as, in case this person needed to replace it immediately for their occupation if, if they believed that. Now, the other thing, though, is we, we got to keep in mind, we've not even determined that these three attacks are actually connected yet. It's looking that way. There are right. similarities that would have you believe there are there's no sign of forced entry into Patricia Smith's home. There's no sign of forced entry into the Hobbins child's home. Right. Um, we also, and then we have Donna Dixon who's attacked outside of her home in her garage, but there was a fourth attack. And I want to start off by saying this, you know, when, when you do a very simple Google search of this case, uh, and you can look it up in under several different tags. Yeah. Um, that's, that was the hardest thing about this case. Yeah. You could look it up under the title. We chose the Aurora hammer slayer. Um, I've also seen it called Colorado hammer man. Uh, or any of the many, many different tags given to these cold cases, you will get about one of three different articles reporting the fourth attack. Uh, so what we have done for this this portion is sort of compiled those three uh, more popular articles regarding the fourth attack to, to, tell, to tell you the details uh, of that fourth attack and in relation to uh, the next part of our cold case investigation. Because... There are plenty of questions in this case, but I think let's go through this fourth attack first and get to those questions after. But before we do the fourth attack, we have to take you back a bit to tell you about a man named Bruce Bennett. Uh, Bruce married his high school sweetheart, Deborah. Um, they were they were young. They were actually just out of high school when they got married. After they married, Bruce joined the Navy. He was there. He served uh, four years stationed at Pearl Harbor from 1976 to 1980. Uh, Bruce was a sonar analyst. After the Navy, Bruce was enrolled in college and he was training or trained as an air traffic controller. Bruce's family owned a a family-run furniture store and Bruce was working there. However, he was excited for a possible future career as an air traffic controller. Now, Bruce Bennett and his wife, Deborah Bennett, They both enjoyed living uh, what others would later describe as a quiet life. The two, along with their small children, we have seven-year-old Melissa and three-year-old Vanessa. They had moved to a nice home in the 16300 block of East Center Drive in Aurora, Colorado. Bruce and Deborah are uh, pretty young themselves. Bruce is is 27 and his wife is 26. Mm Mm-hmm. 
They moved there over the course of the long Thanksgiving holiday weekend in 1983. Where we left off in our case so far is January 10th, 1984. Well, we're going to move forward to January 15th, 1984. This is a Sunday. Melissa, the Bennett's seven-year-old daughter, she's going to be turning eight years old later in the week. So the Bennett's are going to celebrate Melissa's birthday on that Sunday. So they had some other family members over that day to join in the celebration. So, you know, sometime on Sunday evening, things are winding down. People have to work in the morning, so their guests are starting to leave. I can't say for certain here what time the last guest or guest left, but I do have something in my notes here suggesting that the last guests were leaving around 9 o'clock, maybe as early as 9 o'clock or as late as 10 p.m. Bruce and Deborah, they cleaned up the party and put the children to bed. Sometime during the night, a cat burglar entered the home armed with a knife and a hammer. Trying to steal cats. A noise must have awoken Bruce. Mm -hmm. And upon which he went to investigate the noise, Bruce encountered the intruder on the stairs to the home and immediately a fight ensued. Yeah. From the way it looks, this was was quite the fight. We have an intruder here with a weapon and Bruce presumably unarmed, uh, regardless of how unfair this fight is. This, this would be what I can say is Bruce did the best to, he could to protect his family. Well, you said the intruder had a hammer and a knife. Correct. Yeah. He, he, Bruce did the best he could to protect his family. He, he had been slashed. Uh, he was slashed several times in this attack. He was hit, over the head with the hammer. Um, but yet, even though he had all these injuries, he rep- repeatedly crawled the stairs, up the stairs, covered in blood, trying to save and protect his family. However, he was unsuccessful. The intruder went to the master bedroom and he pummeled and sexually assaulted the 26-year-old Deborah, leaving her head bashed in. Next, he walked the hall to seven-year-old Melissa's room where he did the same, and then he walked into the youngest girl's room, Vanessa, and repeatedly hit her in the head and face with a blunt object, presumably a hammer. And fast forward ahead a little bit to January 16th at 10 a.m. It's going to be the discovery of the bodies. Yeah, and this happens because Bruce has not shown up for work yet, and as we said, it's a family-owned business, so... One of the people that works there, not sure maybe if if she's the owner of the company, but this is Bruce's mother, Constance. And like others, I'm sure at the store, was just at the Bennett residence the day before for the birthday party. And it's not like Bruce to miss work, certainly without notifying someone. So Constance tries calling the house several times, and with no luck, she decides to go to the Bennett house. Later, she would say that she was afraid of something like uh, CO poisoning. Um, oh, right. yeah. So that maybe, you know, maybe the whole family had fallen asleep for forever because of CO poisoning. So she makes the drive and Bruce's body was discovered that morning by his own mother, Constance Bennett, who immediately called police. Now the Bennett house was a horrible scene as you can imagine. Yeah. And, and these attacks that took place, I mean, the, the house and the rooms were so bloody and the, the victims so badly beaten. And Constance having arrived at a home to see the unimaginable, well, she failed to notice something very important. That out of all the death that had taken place in those dark early morning hours, death had missed the little three-year-old girl, Vanessa. Yeah. Bennett didn't know that Vanessa had, su- had survived the attack until a paramedic rushed out of the house, cradling the battered little girl in his arms. She was in very bad shape, uh, but she was rushed off to the hospital. The other three family members of the, of the Bennett family, Bruce, Deborah, and Melissa sadly were killed that night and pronounced dead at the crime scene. Bruce was found on the stairs, Deborah in her bedroom and Melissa in her bedroom. Melissa, so, go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, it's it's just so, so sad. I mean, one, you know, you applaud Bruce for trying, you know, to save his family and his little girls. 
And then I think just sometimes when it's uh, when there are kids involved in an attack like this, it just seems like, uh, you know, like this one just feels different than the other attacks. Well, it's a it's a lot to it's really a lot to take in all at once there. And but but, but then now we have this, you know, very young victim that's alive that maybe they could give us some information. Yes, and that's that's what we're hoping. Vanessa had skull fractures to both sides of her head. Um, her jaw was shattered, which ended up sending jagged bones into her windpipe. Um, and I and I don't say that to paint a horrible picture for you. I only say that to try All to too des- late. Well, I only say that to try to describe how right. vicious the, it was. You're exa- I mean, yeah. Whoever did this has to be. A fucking monster. Well, and the thing here is, Captain, I point that out because I believe that whoever did this didn't know that the girl was still alive. I think that she probably looked so bad after he had attacked her that he believed that she was dead. Um, A massive investigation had begun, obviously. Uh, This produced very little leads. Uh, Regarding the house itself, the early reports indicated the following that there again was no signs of forced entry into the home. There was also no obvious motive for the killings for the police. Nothing was taken, taken from the house Mm. except for a knife used to slash Bruce and a purse uh, belonging to Deborah, which was scattered. The the contents of the purse were scattered in the front yard outside and the purse was left in the front yard as well. And you'd think with all these attacks happening, that people would start locking their doors. Not saying that they didn't lock their doors. Just because there's no sign of force entry, mm-hmm. right? Doesn't mean that somebody doesn't know how to pick a lock. Right. Doesn't know how to get, you know, I, I could break into a lot of homes and you wouldn't know that I actually broke in there. Like, there wouldn't be any sign of that. I uh, probably shouldn't have said that out loud. No, you shouldn't have. Uh, regarding Bruce. Uh, The early reports stated that he had been cut and slashed numerous times and struck in the head with a hammer. The district, the, I'm sorry, the deputy district attorney had this to say, quote, it was quite clear he had fought with the intruder. It's apparent he had struggled with his attacker in more than one location and on more than one floor of the house. He had numerous, this is, this is, this is where you like, it's sad because you, you're you're sad that Bruce um, didn't survive the attack, right? But you're all you're in a way kind of proud of him, yeah. Uh, because because you know why? Because fuck the, the intruder, you know. Well, and this is this is from the deputy district attorney's mouth. You know, she says that that Bruce had numerous injuries that could have killed him. That's how. That's how hard he fought and how badly he was hurt during the course of that fight, and he wouldn't stop fighting. It's going to sound a little silly, but this you get attacked, right? And then it's time to, you know, you're down on the ground. You got to make a decision, right? Are you going to get up, right? Are you going to fight? You're going to keep fighting. You have your wife there. You have your your, your children. Mm-hmm. And I bet he pulled one of the Hulk Hogan moves, you know. Where he started waving his finger up, round two, you know, and and yeah, did he did he stop him? No, but like I said, that intruder, you know, had his hands full, and and like you said, it's it's a weird thing to, I guess, say that you're proud of him, but I, you know, I I, I, I don't know what else to call it, right? You know I, what I mean, yeah, it, it's it it sounds weird to say that, but I I mean, there's no other way to put it for me. Okay, so. Let's talk about this because I said that we took kind of, you know, three newspaper articles uh, of the more of the immediate ones that will pull up when you go to look into this case and kind of smash them together to present the whole thing to you as far as the fourth attack and the murders of the Bennett family go. Um, And I want to point out a couple things here because many armchair detectives, many web sleuthers have taken a look at this case over the years and tried to figure out a lot of things about this case regarding the details about, you know, we've always heard the devils in the details. So that's why we pour through the details and try to see if we can gain anything or learn anything about the potential attacker or attackers that committed these crimes. I want to first address one thing. It has been, it has been brought up several times over the years that 
potentially if if all four of these attacks are in fact connected that the killer was escalating meaning that he he chose to bring a knife and a hammer with him to the fourth attack where on the first second and third there's no evidence of a knife being present but later in that story we hear that the knife was probably taken from the Bennett family home. And then it was the bloody knife was found out in front of their home was thrown down near the purse in the front yard. Yeah. When we try to figure out this person, this, this attacker, and if in fact they were escalating, I, I would suggest maybe not because it doesn't appear that this attacker brought the knife with him. It appears that he, in fact, took the knife from the Bennett home and used it during the attack. My guess is that he went looking for the knife, that he had encountered Bruce. He had this fight with Bruce. He probably hit Bruce in the head multiple times with the weapon he brought with him, the hammer. And when Bruce kept getting up, at some point, this attacker believed that his own weapon was failing him. Yeah. And that he went looking for the knife and decided he needed to use a different not, a different weapon, a different method to kill the man that's trying to stop him inside the home that he's entered. And we know this because Bruce's Bruce's throat was slashed. So ultimately he he used a different method to to kill Bruce. However, we heard the uh deputy deputy district attorney stating Bruce had suffered many injuries that would have killed most people. So where I say that people have questioned, was this, this attacker, this intruder escalating, I would guess I would say no. And for the simple fact that I think that this was an unplanned portion of this guy's attack. You know, we saw the previous scenes where there was no knife used, but he also left all of those victims in a manner, which I believe he thought they were all dead when he left there. And I think he broke into the home with the intention of killing who was ever inside and doing whatever he wanted while he was in there. Um, but I don't see escalation here. I think that it's just happenstance that those people survived and thankfully they survived. But don't you think that with some of these attacks there, it suggests that he would be casing uh, the house or casing whatever situation he's going into? Um, You know, we talked about that earlier where, you know, you could have watched Patricia Smith's home from the outside and judging by whether she turned on lights and there were no lights on before that that would indicate that she was in fact alone. But the problem I have with that is if that were the case, he could, he could essentially do this in each one of these attacks. You know, Donna Dixon was by herself. So maybe he followed her in her car, saw her driving home, decided to start following her and then he, he blitz attacked her as soon as she got out of her car. He could have parked near her and just ran up and started attacking her in her garage, knowing that she right. either was alone or if there was somebody in, inside the home, they would have, he would have a few minutes to gain control of the situation. Yeah. You could have potentially followed Patricia Smith home and, and figured out if she was in fact home alone or not. These other two cases, the, the females not by themselves. You know, if in fact that that was his goal, we know that, that there was rape involved in several of these cases. Um, if, if you're trying to get a female alone, that was not the case with the Hobbins child attack or the case in the Bennett house. So therefore that tells me one thing or one of two things, either, um, he's casing the houses as you suggested and maybe the whether there's a man present or not does not affect his determination of going into the home. Right, and my that's what my argument would be is that to me it's a clear sign of escalation if the person cased the house and knew that it wasn't even just two people in the house, but that, that there that, were four. But there were the four, and that there were children involved, and that you know. Wouldn't that be by definition escalating it? it? It would be. But then you have the other situation. Um, part two of my answer would be maybe he's not watching the houses and does not care who or what is inside. Yeah. That he's just going to go in and take over the scene and leave a horrible, horrible, bloody mess when he's done. Let's talk about questions here. Because one thing that we've tasked ourselves with with this case, because this is a... It, 
you know, this is a fascinating cold case. And there I've, I've come across many common questions that people have come up with within the first few years after these attacks had happened. Now we said cold case, so you need to keep in mind it's cold for a reason. There were these four attacks that may or may not be linked, but there were no more attacks that we can find that were similar that could be linked to this. So the questions that we've tasked ourselves with answering, and we're going to have to do this in the next episode because we're getting a little, little lengthy here today, but, um, that's what she said <laughs> of the, of the, the first question is this, it's not clear if all four of the January attacks are connected. So we'll try to answer that one tomorrow. Um, also because there were no signs of forced entry into the homes, how did the intruder get into the Bennett home or the other homes? Did the killer know his victims? And if not, did he, how did he choose these particular people or houses? Also, what was the motive for these attacks or killings? Why was Patricia killed during the day and the Bennett's killed overnight? And then also, as we had already stated, the killings ended with the Bennett family murders. Why did the, did the killer die or did he just stop killing or maybe he moved to another state. So we're going to do some additional digging and see if we can answer these questions for you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. And thank you for telling a friend until next time, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.